Good morning and welcome to Palm Sunday at La Jolla Community Church. Will you please stand as we worship the Lord together?
Let's wave those palm fronds in the air, ready? Yeah. 
that again and we can see that God is moving.
God, you are our God. We praise you for this great truth and gift. Because of the cross, we are yours. We are gathered together again today in your name to praise you as our creator and redeemer and the Lord of our lives. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness. You are training us, Father, to renounce ungodliness. And as trainees do, we fail at times. We know we do. And we ask with David that you would search us and know our hearts and thoughts and bless us then with this conviction about what we're getting right and conviction of anything we need to renounce and confess, anything not worthy of you. And as we accept these gifts of conviction, we also throw our arms around the enormous gift of your forgiveness, ours because the debt has been paid. Thank you, Jesus. This is where we want to live in your love, in forgiveness. Rescue us from any sense of condemnation, from any lies in our thinking that don't line up with your truth. Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. And so this is our prayer for ourselves, Father, and for one another. In the week ahead, may our faith in you be unshakable because it is rooted in who you are and not in how things go rooted in who you are and what you've done for us. Whatever we see around us, may we see you. However busy we are, may, may we take time with you. Whatever our need or our joy, may, may we share them with you. May we know you with us. Thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. This is our prayer that through this church, through our families, through our individual selves, you would spread fragrance, the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And this is our prayer. Thank you that you always lead us. We are never venturing into the unknown. It may be unknown to us, but it is known to you. We will never step anywhere that you are not stepping ahead of us. Our children will never step anywhere that you have not gone before. You always lead us. You always lead us in triumphal procession. Thanks be to God. Amen. In a moment, the ushers will be forward with Bibles if you need them. Right now, stand up and give someone a Holy Week Palm Sunday welcome.
Fantastic. Thank you. Well, it's hard to believe it was uh, three months ago that we were celebrating Christmas. Isn't that amazing how fast the time goes by? Um, and we, we uh, read this verse. Uh, some, some shepherds out in the field watching their sheep. And an angel of the Lord appears to them. And an angel of the Lord is a, is a heavenly warrior. Uh, we tend to think of it as this Italian little poochie, you know, the little kind of pudgy thing that floats around on little wings. Uh, we had a little baby, uh, I guess that's a redundancy. We had a baby here the last service, a uh, little Wyatt, and this kid was inflated. I mean, he was just like the perfect little uh, poochie. But <laughs> if, if, if somebody said, you know, here's Wyatt, a bunch of tough shepherds wouldn't go, <gasps> they go, ah, and they start laughing. But this angel appears and says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Here's why. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This, this phrase, good news, is what every uh, king, especially Caesar, would have proclaimed and announced as the troops came back victorious from battle. They'd, they'd, they'd come ahead of the troops yelling out, Euangelion, Euangelion. Good news, good news, we've been victorious. So this is what was proclaimed at Jesus' birth. Why? Because it would cause great joy for all the people. I love that word great in here. It's another great Greek word, mega, huge, massive, big, uh, amounts of joy. So that was three months ago we read that, celebrating Christmas, Jesus' birth. From that point, when that was said, fast forward 33 years to these uh, verses that we'll read in a moment. Celebrating Jesus entering Jerusalem to fulfill his God-given mission. That Luke passage tells us that God has come in with a mission. Good news that will create great joy among people. A savior born to us in Bethlehem. And now Jesus, at the end of a three-year ministry, is coming into his own. He's coming as the king into what is rightly his. And so Matthew 21 tells us this. Uh, as they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, that's the house of the fig, this little village on the Mount of Olives, this beautiful place in Israel. If you come from the desert, from that area, uh, Jericho, uh, the Dead Sea, that, that part of, of Israel, as you come over the hill into, into Jerusalem, it's breathtaking. You're on the Mount of Olives, these ancient olive trees looking across the valley uh, into Kidron Valley into this massive, beautiful wall and that skyline, that profile of Jerusalem that's breathtaking. I've been there many times, and people, every time they see it, it's like, oh, whoa. So Jesus comes over the hill uh, and sends two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, another small village, and, it, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. Apparently, Jesus, being mission-ready, this warrior king coming in to claim his own had arranged for this to be so. And so now he tells his disciples, go get um, these animals. And Matthew tells us that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, uh, Zion being another name for Jerusalem. It's, it's, it's a way of saying, say to my people, the people who wait in expectation for what I have promised to do, to rescue them, to save them, to redeem them. See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is shocking, because kings tended not to ride donkeys. 
they tend to ride big white charger type horses, big impressive horses, big impressive cars, tanks, whatever. In this case, uh, this is fulfilling a prophecy because it's a radically and revolutionarily different kind of king. Most kings send people out to spill their blood and to make the ultimate sacrifice. Our king came into his own taking that responsibility upon himself. And he comes in peace in the shalom of God. The shalom of God isn't just peace as in the cessation or the, or the reduction of violence. It's the fulfillment of every good and perfect gift that God wants to give to his people. It's the very presence of God that makes life worth living, good and right. And so the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. By the way, you guys looked awesome with those branches. That was fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Nicely done. Blessed, oh, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Jerusalem was like a powder keg. It was so tense. Here's why. The city was being flooded by people coming from all over Israel and far beyond. All, all the Jews around the Mediterranean and beyond, into what we'd call modern-day Turkey, want to at least come one time uh, to have Passover in Israel. And so uh, the highways and byways are just packed, flooded with people. And they all have this expectation that something powerful will happen spiritually. Now, the local people uh, knew that, that it was a very tense situation because they had a Roman garrison, a fort, the Fortress Antonia, right next to the temple where, the, where the, the, the dome of the rock is now. When you look at the picture of Israel in Jerusalem, you see a gold dome. It's an Islamic mosque. Before that, there was a magnificent Jewish temple. But right next to it was a fortress. And the Romans were paranoid that something would happen with all these people so hyped up. Uh, it's like Super Bowl Sunday times 10. And, and people might go crazy and do something rash. And so the, the soldiers are all tense. Uh, Everybody is excited for different reasons. And so now these people are screaming out their praise of Jesus as if he is the one who's come to redeem his people. Not just a celebrity coming in on a donkey, but there's something special about him. We've heard about him. Luke tells us that when Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, having crested the hill, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. The thing about Jesus is not that he's just all talk, all show and no go. What he says, he does. His words line up with his life, his beliefs with his behavior. People said he teaches as one who has authority. He just doesn't quote people after people after people. He, he says things that are quotable. And so here's Jesus capturing the imagination of the people. Jesus himself is coming into Jerusalem. What could this mean? Well, one thing I meant was that the, the religious leaders were really uptight about this. It says here that uh, blessed is a king who comes in the name of the Lord, is being shouted by the people, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They're saying all these messianic things, all these things that are really um, descriptions of God coming in to redeem his people. And they're applying them to Jesus. And so it says some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, the Pharisees were religious leaders who uh, 
after Jerusalem, hundreds of years previously, had been carried off into captivity, these, they got to finally come back to Jerusalem, rebuild it, and they said, look, let's not let that happen again. We took our eye off the ball, we stopped paying attention to God, and we suffered for it. Now that we're back, let's be sure that we keep the law of God. And so it's as if there's a cliff here. They said, well, if that's the cliff that we don't want to go over, let's build some walls through, through rules. And wow, that's still pretty close to the cliff. Let's build some more walls. And let's build some, so pretty soon you're so far away from the cliff, you don't remember there is a cliff, but now all you do is spend all your time maintaining the walls. Uh, so there's rule upon rule burdening the people. And so that has now become the focal point where the Pharisees started off as the guys going, we just pray that Messiah will come. Now Messiah comes, they have no idea who he is. They're so busy manning the wall. Did you notice that, that horrible accident a week ago in New York City? Five small children are killed in a horrible fire because a hot plate had been left on so that the family celebrating Shabbat, Sabbath, wouldn't have to cook, they wouldn't have to work. And, and somehow there's a short circuit and, and the, the place burned down, the kids were, were killed. It's horrible. Could happen anywhere. In this case, though, it happened because a religious rule said you can't cook. That's against God's law. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't cook. What it says is you shouldn't do normal, you shouldn't do work. But in case you, we, you're getting too close to the cliff, we will count lighting a fire as work. In fact, if you go to, to if we were in Jerusalem right now uh, on a Shabbat weekend, and, and Friday night we get in the elevator at our hotel, uh, you'll notice people getting on the hotel uh, in the elevator, and they're not pushing any buttons. They don't need to because it's all programmed to take you one floor at a time very slowly up the hotel because nobody wants to push the button. Why? Because pushing the button isn't work. It's because when you push the button, it, it's an electron, electronic charge, and that spark is making a fire. So this is where the law takes you. The law is a good thing saying this is how righteous God is, how holy he is, how far short we fall. We need to be saved. Instead, the law becomes an end in itself. And these Pharisees now hearing that Jesus, giving all this praise and glory and honor that belongs alone to God, are incensed. And so they say to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. This is so wrong. This is heresy. This is inappropriate. And what does Jesus say? He says, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. You see, all creation yearns for the salvation of the Lord. All, salvation, all, all creation wants the world uh, to be right. People and everything in it. We have har horrible environmental issues. Creation itself, so to speak, is crying out for redemption. Make it right. Get it right. And we don't get it right. We can't get it right. We can't even get along with each other. Never mind get, getting it right for the environment. We're in desperate need of salvation. So this yearning, this pent-up desire is being expressed by the people. And the Pharisees are saying, stop that. And Jesus says, you know, if, if I told them to quit, even the stones would start yelling out. Something powerful is going on here. Don't miss it, he's saying to them. Well, then it says, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. Why would he weep over it? Because he saw the condition it was in. Not that it wasn't beautiful. It might have been never more beautiful than it was at that point. It was really kind of the high point of Jerusalem. It was as gorgeous as it could be. Herod, the king, had made it so. Everything was gorgeous. It was an impressive city at that point. But he weeps. He says, even if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, the shalom of God, but now it is hidden from your eyes. They were caught up in the beauty of the city. 
the, the temple. They're caught up in the political intrigues whirling all around them. But within a generation, in AD 70, the entire city would be decimated, destroyed. By 135 AD, literally every stone was taken off every other stone so that the place was a wasteland. And so Jesus is weeping over it. He sees where we are and he weeps over us. The decisions we make, the choices we make, the things we choose over him, the things that we choose that we think are good for us but, but will do us in. Sin makes promises it cannot keep. Sin tells us lies. It says, this is really good. You'll really like it. And Jesus is weeping over that. And he's come to make uh, a difference and a change. So Jesus came to reveal what was hidden. And what was hidden? The glorious mission of God. It's apparent when you look around the world, the need around us. It's apparent that, that things need to get better, that we need to get better. And with all the things we try to do to get better, to make it better, uh, we don't do a very good job. But for all of our good trying, what's hidden from us is the fact that it's the mission of God that will make it right. It's God redeeming his world. And we're called then to participate in that redemption by being saved personally and then by, by entering into whatever God is doing and what he wants us to be a part of. So the writer of Hebrews says it this way. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The son, he's talking about Jesus. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. You think about that. You're saying that Jesus is God in the flesh? You use the word son because it's hard to get your head around this. How could God be God and still be in a human body? It's one of those incredible mysteries and, and miracles, right? The incarnation of God, God taking on human flesh, coming into our own world. The Greeks were scandalized by this. They said, this is ridiculous. God would never pollute himself by coming into this polluted world. Have you ever seen a parent going after their kid when they're in danger? Does anything stop that parent? Oh, no, it's a pool. I might get wet. Oh, no, it's a big dog. I might get bit. Oh, no, it's whatever. No, they go, I, they go right in. I'm going to save my kid. I don't care what, it, what, what happens to me. Uh, I, I told some of you this story, and I'm telling it because you guys are sitting here, and you'll appreciate this story. This family came in to see me. They wanted to have their child uh, baptized. We're talking, and the kid's about two years old. The kid's running around my office, and all of a sudden he stops. He has this panic look on his face. He looks around, and he starts throwing up on my office carpet. <laughs> the dad sees it, and he puts his hands under the kid's mouth. <laughs> the kid throws up in his hands. He's like, oh, okay, oh. He's looking around, and I, and I said, oh, right through here, over here, you know, here's a little bathroom. You can, and the dad comes back, he's mortified. He goes, oh, my gosh, I'm so embarrassed. I'm so, so, so sorry. I said, that was awesome. Because <laughs> I really want to replace this carpet. It is so ugly. This is just going to help. <laughs> I said, besides that, though, what was awesome is what you did. Could you have ever imagined yourself doing what you just did? He said, no. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, I would never have done that. That's completely gross. Yeah, but he's your son and you loved him. You saw the panic look on his face and his distress. And so you wanted to comfort him and me. Thank you very much. You, know. <laughs> you see the power of this? 
that the Father has come after us. Why? Because after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That's our king. That's why he comes. And people have a sense of this as he's coming into Jerusalem, and they can't help but express it. All their hopes and dreams and aspirations are pouring out of them. And that's right. The yearning that you have for God, even though you might be confused about things and rebellious about things, the yearning you have for God is God saying, I really am who I am, and I really am here for you. And I, I weep over you, and I want to be able to rejoice over you. So come to me. So the first big idea that emerges from this is that Jesus was motivated by a compelling mission. He was motivated by a compelling mission. He came to save you and me. Now, some people would say, I don't need to be saved. That's how lost we are. You don't even know you need to be saved. Everything is cool where I am. Right. As you go down for the third time under the water. As the avalanche starts to crack off the, cl off the cliff and come your way. So John, uh, writing in his gospel, said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only, one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have life forever. He wants to give us a life that is durable and sustainable and that nothing and no one can take away from us because it's his gift to us by his grace. Jesus said, I've come to do the will of him who sent me. This is his mission, right? He sent me to save you, and that's what I'm going to do. Jesus said, very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. You see, when Jesus completed his mission, it made it possible for us to be partners with God in his work in the world. Not only are we saved and being saved, we get to be his partners to say, well, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to do this? And so believing in Messiah Jesus means embracing his mission, the mission of God, this glorious mission of God. And so doing God's will is what we live for and what we live from, like Jesus did. It's what we live for. I, I, was, I quoted a movie uh, the other day, uh, previous service, and I said, I can't remember the name of the movie, but so somebody leaves a note up here with the name of the movie. And um, uh, a very smart congregation. So it, it's, it's Dudley Moore in Arthur, and Sir John Gielgud is Hobson, his butler. And so Arthur says, Hobson, will you draw me a bath? And Hobson says, it's what I live for. Uh, this has become a joke at our house. If somebody asks you to do something like inconvenient, you go, it's what I live for. Of course I'll do you know. But see, that's what Jesus did. It's what he lived for. It's why he came into the world. And in him, it's what we live for. We're so tempted to say, don't they have people to do this sort of thing? I was with some friends one time in Italy in this really cool hotel on the Amalfi Coast. And it was so old that it didn't have an elevator. Just a lot of stairs. And so, you know, you take your bag up to your room. And so we're, we're leaving after a couple of days and, 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 and early in the morning. And uh, we're looking at all these bags and we're walking out. And the people we were with said, this, this dear friend said, don't they have people to do this sort of thing? I said, yes, they do. It's you and me, us. We are the people who do this sort of thing. It's what we live for, right? And that is loving and serving and enjoying God. It's why Jesus came to save us so that we could be part of that of being his partner in loving and serving and enjoying God. How's that going for you? And let me ask you this. Is your life a wish list or a to-do list? Think about it. Is your life a wish list or a to-do list? And let me clarify. 
A wish list is what you hope someone else does. That's the basis for marriage. It's also the basis for divorce. We do this to our friends, to our family, uh, you know, kids do it to their parents. Mom, I can't find it and fill in the blank, you know. And as soon as mom walks in, she goes, it's right there. Oh, oh, I didn't know it was on the floor in front of me. I didn't, you know. I want something good is what the wish list is about. I want something good, and I want you to provide it. A to-do list is a little different. A to-do list is what you commit to make happen. It says, I will do something good. Every marriage and family therapist, their whole job is to get people to move from their wish list to their to-do list. A therapist came up to me after the last service and said, I want to use that in therapy. I said, you use this in therapy every day. She said, yeah, but I've never thought of it talking about it that way. I said, well, this is what it is, right? I wish my wife would change. I wish my husband would change. I wish my kid would change. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm learning to love my wife. I'm learning to love my kid. I'm learning to love myself. I'm doing something. So what do we see in this mission of God that compelled him and, and motivated him to come save us? It's that Jesus Christ came into the world to lead us from wishing to doing. I wish it was a God. There is a God. And he's doing something. I wish I could be different. Ah, you can be different. Commit yourself to him. I wish, I wish, I wish... Okay, then learn to do and do and do. So, so two motifs come together in Jesus. Two big realities that don't usually go together. He's the suffering servant and he's the conquering king. Those usually don't go together. The conquering king does not usually see themselves as a suffering servant. I am the king. It is good to be king. It's not good to be the servant. Satan, John Milton has Satan in, in, in uh, that poem, Paradise Lost, saying, I'd rather be a king in hell than a servant in heaven. But Jesus, the suffering servant and the conquering king, comes into the world to conquer Satan, to destroy sin and death. Why? So he could save us. And so the second big idea of the morning then emerges from that. By fulfilling his mission, Jesus does five essential things. One, he confronts us with our need. We all have a desperate need what only God can provide. We have an absolute need for God. Two, he comforts us with his presence. It wasn't enough for him to send a postcard, an Instagram, a Snapchat. Where did that message go? He sent himself. Three, he counsels us with his word. His word is to make us wise, to understand his ways. It reveals what is otherwise hidden. It tells us his missional plan, the purpose of what he's doing and why we're part of it. Four, he calls us into his community. Is that not fantastic? That God says, I want you to be with me. Don't you feel great when you walk into a party and so he says, oh, sit down with me. You're at a game and it's crowded and you're wondering where you're going to sit. So he goes, oh, no, sit, up, sit by me. Wow. I was standing in the back uh, at the beginning of the service and, I, and, and I, as I was standing there, two people came in and my friend said, oh, you can sit here. And they pu pushed me out of the way. And he said, you don't need that seat. You'll be standing up there in a minute. Get out of here. So, you know. <laughs> but I love that. That's what community does. It says, hey, sit with me. Be with me. God says that. Hey, you, I know your name. Come be with me. Five, he conforms us to his character. We start to look like him and act like him. 
we start to think his thoughts after him. As imperfect as we are, there start to be these amazing signs that I see something familiar in you. Oh my gosh, you remind me of Jesus. And I've seen my life go from people looking at me going, oh, Jesus, to where you remind me of Jesus. Instead of like, oh, no, now what mischief are you into? It's like, wow, I'm starting to see something in you that makes me want to know Jesus too. That's what God does in his mission. And so he came to deliver us from something and to develop us for something. He loves us right where he finds us, and there's a word for this. It's called grace. He loves us right where he finds us, exactly how he finds us. And he says, you, where you are right now, come with me. And his grace makes that possible. But because he loves us so much, he does not leave us where he finds us. And this is called growth. That little cute baby, Wyatt, that was in here, that little um, cute little uh, inflated baby. Um, uh, that baby was delivered so that it continue, can continue to develop into maturity. We, we love babies, but we want to see them grow into what they can be. So God delivers us as spiritual babies and then develops us into mature disciples. The New Testament uses the analogy of a body, all parts working together in unity. You're part of the body if you are in Christ. You know, a part of your body, when it's detached from the body, doesn't survive on its own. It only has life when it's attached to the body. And it has a purpose. And don't you love it when your body is, is coordinated and working together? Like if you're a dancer or you're surfing or you're playing a sport or you're playing a, a musical instrument, when your body coordinates and, and also you're in that zone, it's the best game of your life, the best race of your life, the best concert of your life. It all came together. You go, wow, so neat. That's what God calls us into. That leads us to the third final big idea, that Jesus Christ calls and equips his people for their mission in the world. He calls us, come to me, come with me. And he says, and I'm going to prepare you to do what you were created and now being saved to do. He, he calls and equips his people for their mission in the world. So Jesus didn't die, think about it this way, Jesus didn't die so we could go to church. That's not being disrespectful of church, but I tell you, it, theologically, this is solid ground. Jesus did not die so you could go to church. Jesus died so you could be the church. Big difference, right? You don't attend a worship service. You enter into worship. And so he is the one that makes it possible for us to be the church. What does that look like? Well, I want to tell you a story. When I first came to La Jolla uh, 20 years ago, I was here for a couple weeks, and, and this guy takes me out to eat at Harry's. How many of you ever been to Harry's? Okay. So I, I, if I had time, I'd tell you a ton of great Harry's stories. But every time I go into Harry's, Harry would go, just remember, I'm praying for you. And it was like an encouragement and a threat all at the same time. You know, don't, <laughs> don't screw up. And no matter who I'd bring with me uh, over the years, he, he'd come up to the table and go, you're with Steve. Are you a friend of Steve's? You must, do you love Jesus? And people would be like, ah, oh, you know. And if they did, they say, yeah, I do, you know, and he said, oh, good. And, and if they didn't, they go, who was that guy? He owns a restaurant, you know. But Harry was his larger-than-life guy, and I, I learned to love that place. Well, here's my first introduction to it. This guy takes me uh, to uh, uh, breakfast there, and <coughs> he was a very well-intentioned guy who wanted me to know that his church was a club for very successful people. And he made it real clear to me that he was a very successful person. And gave me all the, re all the credentials and accolades uh, of his resume that proved he was a bona fide successful person. 
and that his church was a place where successful people finally arrived one day. But there's a problem. His club was failing. It was dying. It was becoming shabbier by the day. And in fact, it was organized for that. And so I'm trying to understand what he's telling me. But I had a sinking, sneaky suspicion that I'm supposed to do something about making his club better for all these successful people. And so he had a solution for me. He wanted me to improve the comforts of its privileged members. So, uh, you know, I, I was, I, I, I thought, this is not going to be a good ending. And, uh, but I thought, okay, Lord, give me wisdom to say this in the nicest, most, not nicest, but the kindest, most thoughtful way I can. So I just said, you know, right now we're sitting about midway through, midway, midway between La Jolla Country Club and the church. And I'm confused about which one you're talking about. Because what you seem to be describing is La Jolla Country Club. Not Jesus' church. Because Jesus' church is where people are drawn together to come to know Christ and to grow in Christ and to figure out how they've been gifted to serve Christ. And in that internal connectedness, they have an external focus. And they go for it. That's what I've come to do. And then after people do that and they have a break, they go up to La Jolla Country Club and kick back and have people wait on them hand and foot. I said, I have no problem with either entity, but this is the entity I'm the pastor of. And this is what I've come to do. So I said, at the risk of offending you or a lot of people, let me just make it real clear, that's what I've come to do. And I'd appreciate your help in doing that. And it got me thinking about a list that I've, I've kept over the years. I started making this list and finally wrote it down. And so I'm going to share part of it. It's become very long, but I'll, I'll share you a few observations about... Country club churches that inevitably die and Jesus-centered churches that inevitably grow. Growing churches have a parking problem. <laughs> I mean, great restaurants have a parking problem, right? I mean, uh, dying churches don't. Growing churches are always changing methods. Dying churches don't. Growing churches lack space. Dying churches don't. They have plenty of space. You can shoot a gun. Nobody would be injured. Growing churches generate resources. Dying churches don't. And by the way, the resources are defined broadly. People, gifts, money, whatever, time, talent, treasure. Growing churches constantly plan for the future. Dying churches live in the past. Oh, you should have been here when it was. Growing churches turn out. Dying churches turn in. And because of that, Growing churches are about serving. Who can I serve? Dying churches are about survival. Now, survival isn't bad. It's just not our ultimate mission. Our mission is serving. I might die in the, in the course of fulfilling my mission, but that's the point, to fulfill my mission. Live or die. Growing churches take risks. Dying churches hate risks. It's uncomfortable. It's inconvenient. It's disruptive. And after all, I'm a member, and I've got privileges and rights. Growing churches equip disciples, people who do stuff. Dying churches create bureaucrats. Lots and lots of rules. Don't get near that cliff. Growing churches evangelize. Dying churches fossilize. This is not a judgment of any particular church. It's simply an, or it's an observation of the church, the church in Europe. How many people have gone to Notre Dame and said, this is awesome, and then thought, has anybody been saved here recently? You can go to Harry Potter's dining room at Christ 
College, Oxford. It's awesome. Uh, and if you go to any of the services, it's pretty, pretty sparsely attended. You go across the street from that magnificent place to another Anglican church, a little dinky church. It's packed with people worshiping God, becoming disciples, figuring out how to reach out to Oxford and, and make a difference in the name of Jesus. One is a, is a monument. The other one is a movement. A monument to great human whatever. The other one, a movement to the spirit of God at work in the world. And so growing churches commit to Christ's mission and learn to grow into it. And I've always noticed this, uh, that mission and ministry are messy. I have a slide to prove it. Somebody sent me this uh, this week, and I thought I'd show it to you. Notice your plan. <laughs> this is definitely my plan, <laughs> except my bike has a motor on it <laughs> and a small umbrella over me as I'm on it. And, I, and this, is, this plan is a little bit off because it's slightly inclined. I, my plan is more down, you know. So I can, I can coast. And then I, I bump into God's plan. It's, it's just below. This poor hapless person on the bike, now a dinky little figure. And you see all the obstacles, all the adversity, all the barriers to success that this person is going to experience. And I think, that poor person. And then I realize, wait a minute. That's the whole point. It's an adventure. He's going somewhere. And he's going to grow strong in the process. That's the beauty of the messiness. If mission and ministry are messy, that's why we need a Messiah, right? A Messiah. In the midst of our messes, the Savior comes to find us, to restore us for our mission. And he says, now, don't be freaked out by the plan. It looks overwhelming and impossible only because it is, except that I'm with you. Therefore, we will do it together. So on this Palm Sunday, remember, we are a Christ-centered church in order to be people-focused. It's all about Christ, and it includes people. Strong vertical. Jesus, it's all about you. Strong horizontal. People matter. So remember who you are and, and what we are in Christ. And in that sense, let's welcome and worship and walk and work with Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our King. Lord Jesus, that's my prayer for me, for my brothers and sisters, for this church, uh, for the churches of this community. Bless every one of them. May they be growing and thriving and alive in you for your church across this country and around the world. The church that allows us to sing your praises, that you've come to rescue your people and redeem your creation. That's our prayer today. And in Jesus' name we do pray. Amen. In a moment, the ushers will come forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings. But first, I just want to say how grateful we are that God has brought you here to worship with us today. And if you happen to be visiting for the first time, we'd love to get to know you out at the guest information table. We have a Bible for you and some other information. And if you would uh, fill out that welcome pad in the seat pocket in front of you, give us your email address so we can get you on our weekly email list and start keeping you informed of all that's happening here in the life of this church. Jeff Johnson, will you come up, please? We have... Um, Oh, no, wait. I'm sorry. I'm out of order. <laughs> sorry. There's a lot to remember today. Um, let's pray for the offering. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the generosity of the people in this church. Lord, we want to move forward together in Christ. And one of the ways we do that is through our time and our talent and our treasures, Lord. We know that... Uh, in your hands, our gifts this morning will be used to draw more people into relationship with you. In your name we pray. Amen.
saved find their way at the sound of your great
seated. We have one last thing we would like to do this morning. Jeff Johnson, now, now, <laughs> will you please come up? Many of you know that one of the ministries here that has had such a huge impact is our Mexico house building uh, ministry. And over the last seven years, this man here has led the effort um, to build homes down in Mexico. It started with his Thursday morning uh, life group that has been going through the Bible for seven, ten years, and they just finished it uh, this past year. They're, and they're starting over again. And they're starting over again. All men are welcome. But they started building homes down there seven years ago, and how many are we? Have you built? You know, there's uh, there's been so many. I have lost track of the exact number, but my conservative estimate is 45. 45 homes for needy families just over the border. And many of you have gone. How many of you have been on a Mexico house building trip? Yeah, so many families, people have gone. And um, Jeff is passing the baton. He is um, going to be moving on to other uh, ministries that he feels God is calling him to. And we are um, going to be looking for someone to... I can't say they'll fill your shoes, but somebody that can step in and facilitate this so that we can continue to build homes down in Mexico. Um, and so we just want to honor Jeff um, this morning. We're going to show a brief video, but first, can we just give him a round of applause? <laughs> Thank you. Please watch this brief video that Sandra Munson put together.
That website you can visit is our actually our church website, which is in the bulletin. There's a little bit about that ministry. And also stay after the benediction. If you want to see and uh, honor all the people that have served in the ministry, we're going to scroll all their names up there. Um, today, as you can see, we have a brunch after the service. Don't walk to your car. Walk straight out to the patio and get some food. It's an amazing uh, spread that Francisco and his family have put together for us. And so, you know, join us for that. And then Holy Week services, we have Monday, Thursday service on Thursday night with communion and Good Friday service, of course, on Friday. And then Easter Sunday services at 7.39 and 10.45. Grab an invitation as you leave and invite uh, someone to join you. Thank you so much. Could you please stand for the benediction? If there's anything we can pray for you about, uh, before you leave today, go out into the prayer garden. We'd love to have a prayer with you uh, about anything that you are concerned about for yourself or for anybody else. And so now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon us all, giving us everything we need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him, both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hello.